Ocean acidification. It's been called global warming's evil twin. As carbon dioxide builds up in the atmosphere, it's absorbed by the ocean, where it turns to acid. Over the past 200 years, the ocean's pH has dropped by a third, and that has some pretty serious repercussions for marine life, including a group of tiny marine snails called pteropods. You may not heard of a pteropod before, but some scientists hope it could become the poster child of ocean acidification, surpassing even oysters and corals. Gareth Lawson is among those pteropod enthusiasts. He's an assistant scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, where he studies the ecology of pteropods in hopes of understanding how they're impacted by climate change. He's also been collaborating with artists to raise the public profile of pteropods. Welcome, Gareth. Thank you. So, pteropod, uh, if I recall my Greek, it means wing foot. Winged foot, exactly. Yeah, they, uh, they're related to snails, so they're gastropods, related to uh, terrestrial snails. And uh, terrestrial snails, of course, have that, that foot structure that they use to inch their way along and, and it's evolved in the pteropod into a, a bilobe structure that looks much like a, like a wing uh, that they use to propel themselves through the water. So they're floating. They're not down on the bottom. Exactly right. They're plankton, so they, they stay in the water column for the entirety of their, uh, of their lives. How big are they? Uh, they range in size from sort of less than a millimeter to on the order of three centimeters, so they're quite small. And their shells are, are translucent in a lot of cases, right? Yes. And, and some don't even have shells. Right? Exactly, yeah. So incredibly thin shells. In, uh, translucent, you can see through them in, in many cases, and that's partly an evolution uh, for the pelagic environment. So in order not to sink, if you take a periwinkle, for example, and you put it in the water, it'll just sink to the bottom. So these have evolved this very, very thin uh, shell structure. So they're they're really quite beautiful to look at when you blow them enough up enough that you can actually see them and they've actually been called sea angels or sea butterflies they have these very uh, ethereal sorts of names attached to them. Yeah, exactly. The the sea butterflies. So that uh, word came from the uh, French fishermen that first uh, uh, described them, I suppose. And uh, th- because they have this this bilobed wing structure, uh, when they flap, they look a lot like a like a butterfly flapping their way through the uh, the water. Uh, and then the sea angel, that's sort of the relatives of the, the sea butterflies. The sea butterflies are the ones with the shells. So those are what we call the thecosome or shelled uh, pteropods. Uh, the, uh, the sea angels are the gymnosome. So gymno means naked, some means body, gymnosome, pteropods. So uh, they also have uh, wing structures and a sort of a longer body. And when they uh, hover in the water column, they look a little bit like, a, like an angel. So why are these small snails so important? Well, you know, in an, in an ecosystem sense, they're, they're important as prey for a lot of the sort of animals that we value or that we uh, exploit commercially. So they, uh, they're prey for some whale species. Uh, back when, uh, during whaling, you know, the, uh, the whalers would see the, these pteropods in the, in the stomachs of the whales. Um, they're also important for certain species of uh, commercial fish. So the, the larval stages of uh, cod and redfish uh, uh, depend to some extent on the, on the pteropods. And um, salmon, salmon in the, uh, the North Pacific, uh, about 70% of the diet of some uh, salmon species is, uh, is pteropods. Wow, and we've, most of us never even heard of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are they found everywhere in the ocean or only in, in specific places? Um, you know, actually, they are fairly widely distributed, different species, of course, but throughout the world's, uh, world's oceans. And that's one of the things that's maybe a bit interesting about them is that a lot of the sort of animals that we study are in the shelf areas, the, the coastal portions of the uh, oceans. With pteropods, they really do fill up the ocean basins. And, you know, if you look at a map or you look at the globe, the ocean basins are very, very large. So there are a lot of pteropods out there. So 
What do we know about how they're being impacted by climate change? Why would pteropods be particularly sensitive to climate change? Right. Well, they form this this very thin shell. Uh, so the shell is made out of calcium uh, carbonate, and that's what makes them vulnerable to ocean acidification. Uh, so that might be a bit counterintuitive, but uh, basically the process is all this this carbon dioxide that's accumulated in the atmosphere through the burning of, of uh, fossil fuel, so through anthropogenic sources, a large fraction of that is dissolving into the oceans and is disrupting a, a series of sort of chemical balances, if you will. Uh, one of the consequences is that the pH is, is uh, dropping, so that's why we call it ocean acidification. But another consequence is that the availability of carbonate is also going down. So things that need carbonate in order to make a calcium carbonate shell are having a harder time. So that's where we've heard about uh, the fact that coral reefs uh, could be in real trouble, that oysters um, around New England could be in trouble because they need the carbonate to make their skeletons or their shells, and the, the same thing for these these pteropods, these floating snails. Exactly, exactly. The difference being that this is now in the planktonic environment. So um, maybe, I suppose that people don't think about the plankton as much as they do about the coast. So something like an oyster is very immediate. Corals are something that a lot of us are, are familiar with. But most people haven't seen a pteropod. Most people aren't going out into the open ocean and looking for tiny uh, millimeter-sized uh, size bugs. But like I was saying, because they do fill up the ocean basins, you know, they're, they're a very important uh, form of that or repository for this calcium carbonate. So why is it that important? I mean, if they're these very tiny, they've got very tiny shells that they've made as thin as possible to be lightweight, why is it so important that they have those shells? Oh, well, that's a good point. Yeah, so it's partly an anti-predation uh, kind of a strategy. It's also, uh, they use it for sinking. When they stop flapping, they tend to sink, which is uh, uh, a predator avoidance mechanism. Uh, now, there have been lab studies that have had a pteropods that were, uh, had no shell. They were, you know, cultured to, to lack a shell, uh, and they did very poorly. Uh, those uh, those those animals, even I, without the the predation pressure, there, there's something right. just physiologically they, that they need the shell. Well, I mean, I guess keeping them alive in the lab is is a little bit difficult in general. So maybe it's hard to disentangle the sort of experimental effect from the the, the lack of a, a shell. But uh, in in the wild, I think the anti predation would uh, would be the, the the issue. I know there's some concern with. Uh, things like oysters or others that, that need carbonate shells, that there could also just be a, almost like a physiological tax that if they're trying, constantly trying to build the shell and having a hard time building the shell, that that could just be exhausting resources that they would be using for something else. Is that also a concern for pteropods? Yeah, very much. It's, a, it's an energy balance. The way I always think about it is that is that I can go outside on a very cold day and I can survive even if I'm naked. Right, um, I have a I have a physiological capacity to to stay alive when it's colder than than freezing. Now, in principle, I should freeze, but I have this physiology that allows me to stay alive when it's very cold outside. So for a same, little while, for a little while. Well, exactly. That's a good way of thinking about it. So, in the case of the pteropods, um, they probably do have ways to cope with these increasingly hostile uh, uh, conditions. But for how long is the question? So what do we know at this point? Is this still kind of hypothetical that they might be impacted by climate change? Or do we already know that they are being impacted by, by climate change and changes in ocean chemistry? Um, I think we – well, we – we don't know, I, I would have to say. We, we don't know. We, I think we can guess that as the water becomes increasingly uh, in, inhospitable to the, the pteropod shell, that it, uh, it will have consequences to them. But we don't know for sure. And we don't know to what extent they have these, these coping mechanisms uh, for the, the uh, acidic conditions. So this is one of the things that, that your lab studies, you guys go out year after year mm -hmm. uh, to the same places in the ocean to 
I guess, measure the the abundance or the health of the pteropods? Why is it important that you, you go to the same places year after year? Well, actually, uh, we've been going out year after year, but to different places in, in the ocean. So uh, we've had two uh, cruises in, in the past uh, two years, um, one to the North Atlantic and one to the North Pacific. And the reason for that is that the chemistry of those regions is, is very different. The, uh, there's, there's actually a, there's a depth in the, in the water column at which the water becomes corrosive to calcium carbonate in its, in its different forms. So uh, for this particular kind of calcium carbonate that pteropods are made out of, in the modern-day Atlantic Ocean, you have to go down to sort of 2,800 meters or so, very, very deep before it, the water becomes corrosive. Okay, now in the Pacific, through just natural processes, it's very old water. It has a lot more carbon dioxide in it naturally, which makes it more acidic. Uh, that, that depth, the depth at that which the, the water becomes corrosive, is far shallower. In, uh, you know, off of sort of San Diego, uh, it's maybe 700 meters, 500 meters. And as you go up to waters off of Alaska, it, uh, it gets to sort of 100 meters or, or even less. Um, now, under continued uh, acidification, the prediction is that depth is going to just get shallower and shallower. So by 2050, some predictions are that the, the Gulf of Alaska will be fully corrosive. The entire water column will be corrosive to this particular kind of calcium carbonate. Uh, in the Atlantic, uh, by sort of 2100, uh, the, the, this, this depth is going to be probably around 100 meters. So the how, question... How certain are those predictions? Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we have measured uh, this shoaling of this, this depth. It's called the compensation depth, and, and through our work, but other uh, uh, projects have, have, have documented this. Uh, the certainty as to, you know, whether it's exactly 2050 or 2055, uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure that there's, there's a fair bit of, uh, of uncertainty there. But it's something where essentially certain is going to happen. It's just a matter of maybe give or take a few years, we're looking at this happening really within the next few decades. Yeah, yeah. In fact, ocean acidification in general is sort of thought in that way, that there's just less uncertainty associated with the measurements. I mean, we can see the pH is going down. We know that these things are are, are happening. There's sort of less room for uh, debate. So then what would be kind of the worst case scenario with the pteropods? I mean, are we looking at by 2050 in the Pacific having no more pteropods? Is it something that dramatic? Yeah, that, that's, that's entirely possible. Um, they might become sort of regionally extinct. You know, portions of the ranges of some species may just disappear. Uh, and, and we don't know how that's going to affect the ecosystem. It's, so it's, it's what we call the sea butterfly effect, yeah, jokingly. <laughs> yes, the butterfly effect, the sea butterfly effect, okay. Exactly. So we don't know the implications. You take away something very small and, and maybe even insignificant in some people's minds from the ecosystem, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but the consequences could be uh, quite large. Certainly the Pacific salmon are going to have a harder, uh, harder, harder time. Well, certainly if that's a major part of their diet and it goes away, they're going to be left looking for something. Exactly, yeah. So it's the sort of the indirect effects that maybe we should be focused on uh, of ocean acidification. And, and that uh, applies to the sea angels as well, the, the naked uh, pteropods. Uh, those species actually feed exclusively on the shelled forms. Right? Mm. So as we take away the shelled ones, these... These, these naked ones are, are, are going to have a very hard time. So is your plan, I guess, science-wise, to keep going back year after year 
till 2050 or, or whenever it is when we start to really see these effects? Um, absolutely, yeah. If, if I can get funded to do so, uh, I certainly plan on uh, doing that. But the, the other thing that we're working on, particularly I have a, a, a postdoc in our lab who's working on this, Amy Moss, um, is, is trying to get at these, these, uh, I, these physiological mechanisms by which they might be able to cope with ocean acidification. Because that's the real question, is, is how might these animals, and oysters for that matter, what, what mechanisms might they have for, uh, for, for coping with these hostile conditions? Well, and that's one of the big questions with ocean acidification. This is really happening at a, a fairly unprecedented rate for the, this kind of drastic change in ocean chemistry. And there's a question as to whether or not animals will be able to adapt in the short term, but evolve in the long term. So is that something that you can start to, to get a handle on as well from your research? You know, I, I, I don't know. I think adapt, yes. Uh, evolve, I'm not sure that we can get a handle on it uh, from uh, from the work we're doing. And the time frames are so short, you know, 50 years before the, the water column is corrosive. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure that there's enough time. Well, what, what's the generation time of a, of, a, of a pteropod? Are we talking, are they, you know, having a new new generation of babies every year, or are they longer-lived, shorter-lived? Yeah, a, a year is, is what we think. So that's one of the interesting things about pteropods is that they've sort of been underappreciated as, uh, as, as members of the ecosystem. So, you know, in, in part, uh, ocean acidification is a great excuse to work on really interesting little little animals. Uh, it's unfortunate for them, of course, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's good for, uh, for the, the scientists interested in little bugs. Um, but... Uh, uh, so among the things we don't know much about are, is the life history of these uh, these animals. So we, we think that in most cases it's, it's about a year generation time, but we're not sure. Uh, one thing we do know is that, is that they're, uh, they're protandrous hermaphrodites. So these, Wow, okay, wait, go back. Protandrous right. hermaphrodites. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that, that gets giggles depending on the audience that I uh, give these sort of talks to. But uh, protandrous hermaphrodites, that means that they start life as male, uh, and then as they get larger and older, they, uh, they develop into females. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a strategy where uh, the cost of producing eggs is quite high, so it's better borne by larger animals. So they start out as males, cheap, sperm-producing, and then as they get bigger, they, uh, they start devoting, having more uh, uh, resources to allocate to eggs. So would we see the number of females start to go down, perhaps, before we saw the whole population disappear? You know, if they're dying, would they be dying off earlier and just never kind of get to the point of being a female? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I guess it, that, that is possible. I guess we'll have to see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, I mean, you, you mentioned that these are underappreciated animals. It's always amazing to me, actually, some of the really basic stuff that, that we don't know. Like, we, we don't actually know how, uh, how long they live or exactly what their whole life history is. You're also trying to raise the public profile, not just the scientific awareness about these, these animals. Why do you think it's important that Everybody on the street knows what a pteropod is. Well, I, I think that ocean acidification as a, as a sort of uh, societal and global issue is only s- still gaining recognition. You know, there was a, a New Yorker article in what, sort of 2005, right? So a, a problem has arrived when a, there's a New Yorker article that's been written on it. Um, but but I, I do feel that it's, it's increasing in, in recognition. And, and pteropods are... Uh, like you said at the at the introduction, um, they are sort of like a poster child for the potential effects. So these tiny little animals, we don't think about them, but you can see that they're fragile. With this this translucent shell, they just convey this idea of fragility, you know. And and in that way, they're sort of 
emblematic, I think, of, of ecosystems, the fragility of, of, uh, of complex ecosystems. So one way that you've been trying to raise the profile of pteropods is actually by working with an artist, uh, Cornelia Cavanaugh, who is a sculptor. And you guys actually had an art exhibit in New York City uh, this past summer that was entirely inspired by pteropods. How did that collaboration come about? Yeah, well, uh, Cornelia is a is a fantastic woman, and 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 she has done uh, sculptures, a series of of uh, pieces on a variety of sort of global change related issues. Uh, you know, she did uh, a series on moulins, which are uh, structures that form in in uh, icebergs and glaciers. Pardon me, um, and. Uh, so she was sort of wondering how they may change under continued uh, uh, global warming, and that gets got her thinking about the little animals of the ocean and how they may be affected too. So she came across pteropods on Google, like you do, um, and uh, started looking into them, and, and they really fit with her overall aesthetic. To, uh, you know, she wanted to carve some kind of a, uh, an animal, and, and pteropods just, just fit. They weren't too intricate, you know, so they, they fit with her, her overall sort of... Uh, uh, medium, I suppose. What What did some of the sculptures of pteropods look like? Well, they're much bigger than real pteropods. Yeah, I mean, one of them's almost four feet. Right? Yeah, kind exactly. Of la- really larger than life. There's There's one. There's a sea angel that's a kind of a small canoe, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the 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 rest of them they they vary in size, but they're all uh, many times larger than the uh, the little animals. So so she's making macroscopic these these microscopic little things. Now, Cornelia has a really interesting. Um, interaction, I guess, with the way that she relates to the pteropods and and that translates into her sculptures. I guess your art exhibit worked in part in that it got you guys some national media attention. Uh, Ari Daniel Shapiro did a podcast for his One Species at a Time series that airs on NPR uh, this past summer. And uh, in it, Cornelia explains in particular how she really doesn't like one kind of pteropod. Kavanaugh leads me across the gallery to a silver, orange, and purple sculpture of a different kind of pteropod. It's like a giant slug with wings. There's no shell. What is this? Well, this is the beast of all time. This is Cleone Limacina, and their basic diet consists of my beautiful retroverses and the helicinas. The rest of the things on display in the gallery. Yeah. They eat the whole animal. They suck it right out and leave the shell. I got very mad at him, and so I made him as ugly as I could. I know Gareth likes him. I just think he's beastly. Big, ugly beast? I do. I do very much. Yeah, part of what's so nice about working with Cornelia is that she, she really looks at things in a completely different way than, uh, the, than I do. You know, it's really refreshing. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a nice change. I, I wonder what kind of responses you guys got to the art exhibit, or if you know kind of how people came out of it. Did they also come out thinking that some of these pteropods are beautiful, delicate angels and others are beasts? Did they um, come out really concerned about climate change? What were some of the lessons that, that people took out of the exhibit? Yeah, so going through the, the guest book, you know, when people sign in as they walked into the gallery, it was very interesting because some people commented, uh, you know, about the sculptures themselves and how they were beautiful. And other people commented about ocean acidification and, and, and how they were troubled by this. You know, there and there was there was clearly this sort of interaction between the two. When I spent a, you know a couple of days uh, visiting the gallery, and and it was really 
gratifying because the way it was set up is there were a series of, of sculptures, some some very large, some sort of medium sized, and then uh, ringing the gallery walls, we had photographs that uh, that my group, uh, Nancy Copley in particular, had taken, um, and uh, we had specimen boards, so little petri dishes with individual pteropod shells and magnifying glasses, and and uh, sort of, you know, amusing but uh, infer- informational sort of. Uh, uh, captions to these things, as well as some very large boards, I suppose, posters describing our research and describing what we know about ocean acidification. So there were there were a variety of materials that the the gallery goer had access to, and and some of the people would walk in and they'd immediately go to the sculpture. I mean, it's a it's a fine art venue, so that's natural. Uh, and then their eyes might be sort of attracted to the photographs, you know, because that's not a big jump. That's also artistic. So they go over and they look at the photographs and then maybe they'd start reading a little bit about, you know, Protendrous hermaphrodites and, and then they'd move on to, to, to the science. And some people did the opposite. Some people came in and immediately started sniffing at the scientific materials and then sort of worked their way over. So there, there really was a, a sort of synergy between the two. It was, it was very nice. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, I, I know there's this idea that perhaps art can... Um break down some of the barriers that perhaps people feel if they're intimidated by science or um, a little put-off feeling that science is very impersonal, that the emotional attachment to or interaction with art can help break through that. But it it seems like perhaps having the two side by side, not just having the art on its own, but is really a a great pairing. Yeah, I think so. And and what was what's nicest about this particular collaboration too is that we're both tackling the same problem. So these these sculptures, they actually are uh, showing how Cornelia imagines these animals may respond to the sort of future ocean. And 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 that's the exact same thing that we're doing. We're just doing it through our our sort of scientific means. When you guys talk to each other, I mean, do her imaginings of what could happen in the future, kind of like my imagining earlier, um, does that ever spur for you a scientific question that you then incorporate into your research? Um, well, let me think. I don't. I don't think so. No, not not a direct sort of uh, causality in in, uh, in in leading to new research questions, but it it certainly reaffirms the whole sort of uh, process. Just gets you thinking about your science in a in a different way, maybe from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And certainly gets us thinking about how to convey that science to the sort of general audience, in this case, to the art gallery-going audience. Well, you guys aren't the only ones that are thinking about pteropods and trying to uh, raise their profile, get more people interested. Uh, On your blog, uh, I think this has been over a year ago, you posted about some of the um, art projects going on around the country that have to do with pteropods. And one of them uh, was this, uh, uh, what's it called? The Oceans Are Talking Project, uh, Sam Lardner. And he has a song called The Pteropod Song.
now, we should probably apologize to everyone right now for the earworm, because I know from personal experience, after the first time you hear the Terrapod song, you walk around for days singing Terrapod. <laughs> it's very catchy. Yeah. On our cruises, it's kind of the theme song. On our on our first Terrapod cruise, every time we'd put in these nets, uh, you know, when we're fishing to a thousand meters, so they're in the water for a long time, we bring the nets back up and we go to look at what what's in the catch. And I'd always say, Terrapods. And everyone would sing back, Terrapods. It is catchy. It's available on the Amazon, in fact. Oh, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. you can actually, you can find it on YouTube or you can find it on the uh, theoceansaretalking.org website. So there's lots of places where you can find that. And I, I, uh, when I spoke to Sam Lardner's assistant to get permission to play that clip, she said he's actually out of the country. So he's obviously a busy guy around uh, introducing the oceans to a lot of, he, primarily for uh, children or younger audiences uh, through music, but a, a great one. Yeah, that song is so catchy. I just, I'm waiting to see actually the Terrapod dance. You guys will have to, <laughs> next time while you're waiting for the net, start dancing, you know, figure out the line dance to exactly. go with that. I like it. <laughs> so speaking of waiting while you're on cruises, your last cruise had a little bit of a, not exactly misadventure, but uh, you had some technical difficulties and you ended up being delayed by 15 days. What did you guys do with 15 extra days? Well, 15 days, yeah. So um, we were working, Our the start of our survey was at uh, uh, 50 degrees north, 150 degrees west. So that's straight south of Alaska, of Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, in the middle of nowhere, it's five days away from where we started our cruise. So we went five days offshore, getting all the gear ready, getting ready for the work. So that, that's a good time. You know, it's, it's, you're full of energy. And then we got 20 hours into the work, and we blew a generator. So we have two generators. Both of them are older than the ship, which is from 1978. So they're quite old generators. So, And the Coast Guard regulations, we're not allowed to stay out with just the one uh, generator. We need some kind of a backup. Okay, so we have to go back into port in order to fix the generator. So we have five days of transit back in. At this point, the sort of enthusiasm is, is uh, waning a little bit. Uh, but we uh, we passed the time fishing. Uh, caught uh, at least one albacore. Um uh, playing music, uh, you know, people always sort of bring guitars along, and and there were uh, drums and so on made out of uh, you know empty buckets, um, and then playing quoits, Q U O I T S. It's an old English game. Uh, uh, it's like a horseshoe, but uh, it's played with a, a ring made out of rope, and of course, there's a lot of rope on ships. So plenty, plenty of materials to improvise with. Exactly. So we had we had tournaments of uh, quoits. Uh, which was which was quite a lot of fun, and and then we had five days uh, spent in port uh, for the the repairs of this generator, and uh, so some of the people went camping, and and other people went up to uh, Portland, Oregon. We were in Newport, Oregon, for the repairs, and I uh, came back to the East Coast to see my family, uh, and then we had another five days of heading back out to uh, uh, to the study area to uh, to resume the cruise. Uh, so that was more coits and uh, and also getting the the scientific gear ready. And getting yourself psyched back up to exactly. to start over. Very much. I mean, it really is a psychological game. You know, you're out there for, we were out there for uh, more than 40 days, all told, in the end. Uh, and it's a very small boat. It's 170 foot long and, you know, it's confined quarters. So it, it is a matter of uh, keeping enthusiasm and morale high. Now, when you're out at sea, you and some of your other lab mates uh, write a blog called Charismatic Microfauna, which is, is kind of a science in-joke. People tend to joke about the charismatic megafauna being the whales and the, the dolphins with the cute cuddly factor. Obviously, you guys are trying to to get in on that, the, the charismatic little guys. But do you, do you write that blog when you're 
back in the lab, or is that really just when you're out in the field? Just in the field, actually. That, I think that's the only time I really have time to, uh, to to write it. But it's it's mostly about the field work. That's the sort of most photogenic part of the work. Uh, so that's uh, among the reasons that we, we focus on it in the field. And the, the charismatic microphone, I need to give credit to my wife who came up with uh, that expression. She thought it was obvious. I thought it was a pretty clever joke. So is that something you look forward to about going out to see, going out into the field, is the chance to, to write that and think about things in that way for a little while? I, I do, actually, yeah. And I, I think about I, I don't do the majority of the posts. Um, you know, most of the the posts are from the very sort of students and other people who are on, on the cruise. But, uh, you know, I always do the first and the last post and the few of the posts in between. And I, I do think about them a lot in, in advance. I, I look forward to being able to, to write them. Like like the one that I wrote about Pterapods in the Arts was the name, where I talked about Cornelia and Sam Lardner. You know, I that one was brewing in my mind for a really long time. Well, great. Gareth Lawson is an assistant scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Gareth, thanks for joining me. My you, pleasure. You can find a link to Gareth's blog, Charismatic Microfauna, as well as uh, to other uh, pteropod art projects on our website. Go to capeandislands.org and click on Living Lab. This is Living Lab on The Point. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.